Hi, everyone. This is Sarah McFarland from Inside Scientific, the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Today's episode of Expert Answers features Dr. Matt Kaberlein from the University of Washington, who recently joined us for the first webinar in the Science of Aging series, a joint webinar series brought to you by Inside Scientific and the American Physiological Society. Matt's presentation gave an overview of translational geroscience and highlighted his recent work with the Dog Aging Project and the drug rapamycin. Let's dive in. Okay, first question is, what kinds of dogs are eligible to participate in the Dog Aging Project and how can people sign up? Thanks. So, For the Dog Aging Project Longitudinal Study, we really want all kinds of dogs because that study is designed to really try to understand, you know, what are the most important genetic and environmental factors that influence healthy aging in pet dogs. We want to capture as much diversity as possible. So all breeds, mixed breeds, all ages are encouraged to join. In particular, it's surprising, but in in particular, we're finding that within the the pack as it exists now, we're actually underrepresented for very young dogs. So if any of you out there have puppies, I would especially encourage you to go sign those dogs up for the Dog Aging Project. But really, any dogs are uh, welcome to join. There are no restrictions on the longitudinal study. And as I mentioned, the way to do that is to go to the website, dogagingproject.org. There's a little button that says nominate your dog. You click on that. There's a five or so brief question uh, survey to complete. And then once you complete that nomination survey, you will be invited to create what we call the owner portal, which is your own unique place within the website. And in the owner portal, then you will be asked to complete the health and life experiences survey, which is really the foundation of the longitudinal study. And once you do that, complete the HLES, then you are part of the pack. So that's really all it takes to be to participate in this uh, citizen science project. That's awesome. I love that you guys call it a pack. It's so cute. Okay, so moving on to the next question. Do we know why it is that big dogs age faster than small dogs? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So I think I would characterize it as we've got a pretty strong hypothesis. So what we know is that the largest genetic factor predisposition for body size in dogs is a variant in a gene called IGF-1 or insulin-like growth factor 1. So dogs that have high levels of IGF-1 signaling are bigger. And that's really interesting from the perspective of aging because in the model organisms, in mice and fruit flies and in C. elegans, mutations that reduce IGF-1 signaling are associated with increased lifespan. So I think it's a pretty strong hypothesis that that IGF-1 signaling and IGF-1 abundance is at least part of the causation for why big dogs age faster than small dogs. It's absolutely going to be the case that other factors are important as well. And so my hope is that as part of the longitudinal study, you know, we'll actually be able to tease out some of those other factors. It's also interesting because IGF-1 signaling acts in a network with mTOR, which of course is the target of rapamycin that I talked about. So there's probably overlapping mechanisms there. And it may suggest that rapamycin in particular could, and again, this is speculation, but it could have stronger effects on aging in larger dogs as opposed to smaller dogs. Okay. Cool. Another question here is, DNA synthesis is prone to error and increasing stem cell turnover expands the sample space for mutations in key controllers of cell differentiation and cell cycle. The question is, 
are there concerns that chronic treatment with rapamycin, like decades of it, might increase the risk for neoplasias? Yeah, so that's a good question. So the data as it exists, which of course is limited to laboratory animals right now, is pretty clear that mice taking rapamycin throughout life, and so, you know, we're talking a couple of years, at most probably three years in mice, tend to have fewer cancers, or at least the cancers that they get are delayed because they're living longer. So tumor burden at death might be comparable between rapamycin-treated and control-treated mice. But of course, the the rapamycin-treated mice are living longer, so you would have to argue that the, the cancer incidence is at least delayed. So in that context, the answer seems to be no. I, I certainly would recognize that dogs and definitely people, you know, are much longer lived. And so there, it's possible that there may be multiple ways that rapamycin could affect cancer risk. It's a little bit unclear. My reading is that it's a little bit unclear in the organ transplant patient population what the net effect of rapamycin is on cancers. You can find data going both directions, uh, both up and down in that population, you know, those who get rapamycin versus those who don't. So I think the answer is unclear there. And I think we really don't know in, in longer-lived animals. I would speculate that the cancer risk is more likely to be reduced, even from chronic rapamycin treatment, both because of the known effects of mTOR Uh, inhibition in the context of cancer, but also because if the immune system is functioning better during old age, we know that immune surveillance is critically important for cancer prevention. And that's probably a leading cause for many cancers in people is the failure of the immune system. So if you can preserve immune function, that would be predicted to have a net positive effect on cancer incidence. Having said all of that, my sort of bias right now is that cyclical approaches with something like rapamycin is probably the way to go versus chronic treatment over many years or decades. Okay, very cool. All right, we have another question here. How does rapamycin compare to other interventions such as fasting or exercise on markers of aging? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, still being worked out, I would say. So in mice, again, if we just go to the, the laboratory data on mice, caloric restriction is sort of the gold standard for, for lifespan extending interventions in mice. And rapamycin is comparable to caloric restriction, at least moderate caloric restriction. If you go to very severe caloric restriction, you know, 50% restriction in calories, you can get bigger effects than you get with rapamycin. But the sort of standard 30% caloric restriction is roughly comparable to rapamycin treatment in mice. Intermittent fasting is complicated because if you actually look in the preclinical literature the vast majority of intermittent fasting experiments are actually caloric restriction. There are very few intermittent fasting experiments that have been done in an isocaloric manner. And in those cases, the effects on aging are, I would argue, minimal. So it's a little bit unclear whether intermittent fasting in and of itself in in an isocaloric context really has robust effects on aging. I think that's still being worked out. Exercise is fascinating. And there, the mouse data on exercise is, it's hard to know what the effects on aging are, but clearly in people, exercise has robust effects at at reducing age-related disease and disability and probably extending lifespan. I think we don't yet have a any really good data on the relative benefits of exercise versus what you might be able to achieve from rapamycin or potentially even more interesting, what the combination of exercise plus rapamycin would look like. 
Okay, Matt, last question here. Do different breeds of dogs age at different rates? Yeah, so this is a really interesting and important question. So I think right now we really don't know. That's part of what we want to understand through the longitudinal study of aging. Certainly it's the case that some breeds have elevated risk for specific diseases. So for example, Doberman pinchers are at much greater risk for a, a particular disorder called dilated cardiomyopathy compared to dogs of a similar size. Whether that's really reflecting a difference in aging rate or not, I think we don't know. We have some tools to try to address that. For those of you who are familiar with the epigenetic clock literature or other molecular clocks of aging, we're using some of those tools to try to ask whether there are really differences in aging rate. I think the one thing we can say right now is it, it seems clear that body size probably does reflect a difference in aging rate. Big dogs age faster than small dogs. And just being a, a purebred dog, body weight matched to mixed breed dogs, purebred dogs live about a year less than mixed breed dogs. And we don't know whether that really reflects aging or something else. So it's a really interesting and important question. And I hope in a few years we'll have some data to, to, to start to answer that question. Fantastic. Okay. Well, thank you again, Matt, for all of your insights today, both in your presentation as well in the Q&A session. It's been a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure for me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you'll tune in to future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work, offer tips, tricks, and best practices, but most of all, share science. Don't forget to subscribe.